The following is an encore presentation of The Bridge with Peter Mansbridge, originally broadcast on October the 3rd. And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge, the Moore Butts Conversation number four. Welcome to a new week. Peter Mansbridge here in Toronto on this day, although the program was actually recorded over the weekend, or at least the major part of the program. The Moore Butts Conversation was recorded over the weekend while I was in Winnipeg. The Moore Butts Conversation, what is it if you're a first-time listener to it? Well, we started it earlier this year, and it's proven really rewarding for a lot of our listeners. Uh, James Moore is the former Conservative Cabinet Minister. Gerald Butts is the former principal advisor to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And the reason this has been an interesting discussion over a number of different topics is both men try their hardest, and they're pretty successful at it, in dropping partisanship from the conversation and really trying to take us behind the scenes of the important parts of the political process. James Moore is now, as I said, former Conservative Cabinet Minister. He's now a senior business advisor to Denton's and a public policy advisor to Edelman. Um, Jerry Butts is the uh, vice president of the New York-based Eurasia Group. So they're both more or less out of politics, but they're both very much players in politics in our recent past and have a good sense of different topics that deal with politics. Here's today's issue. With a new federal conservative leader and with a new Alberta leader of the governing party and another new premier expected in British Columbia, the NDP leader, is expected to be announced within the next two months. So we've got three major political leaders to be named. And the question is, what do they have to do once they've won the leadership? What are some of the key areas that have to be dealt with almost right away? Because that can set the stage for a successful or an unsuccessful leadership run. So that's the topic on, uh, for today's conversation. As we said, this is the fourth conversation that the team of Butts and Moore have had on the bridge. We look forward to it, so enough preamble. Let's get right at it. Here we go. All right, gentlemen, let's, uh, let, let's start with this. You, you've just won the leadership of your party. It could be federal, it could be provincial. You've just won it. It's that day or that night. What's the first thing you should do, James? Uh, on the night of, reach out to your immediate opponents and make sure that they're feeling the love, that, they're, that their contributions to the party, the growth of the party, the expansion of the party are recognized, that they have a place and an opportunity to continue to contribute to your leadership going forward. But also if they want to exit gracefully from politics because of the nature of these things, it's a very human business that they're free to do so and that you will only say good things about them upon exit. 
the next morning when you wake up, you should probably spend the next few days one by one by one going through your caucus to ensure that you have caucus solidarity uh, and make sure that everybody in the, in, the, in the broader parliamentary family understands that because in our system, we have such deference to authority and deference to leadership that when you're a member of parliament, party members and the public think that you have a substantive insight into the personality of the leader. And so your approval and consent to the transition of power to the new leader is is a proxy for a, for a really important mandate. And if you don't have that caucus solidarity, a leader will get off to a very rocky start. So the first evening should be what I said. The second day should be that. And then you build up from there, just like when you you build a hockey team that wins, you build from the goaltender out. That's first base. The first thing you do is you you reach out to your opponents, build your caucus, and then you can expand from that. Let me rewind you just to the, the first thing, reaching out to your opponents. How do you make that real? How do you make it sound, you know, more than sincere, but that you really mean it? Because, you know... We always see these things kind of happen and people go, oh, yeah, well, he's doing that because he kind of has to do it. But it's not real. How do, how do you make it real? Well, I, I think it's a science of single instances, right, which is to say it's no science at all. And the the interpersonal relationship, like I I have no insight and it, frankly, it's not really my business about one-on-one when they look eyeball to eyeball what Pierre Polyev and Jean Chouret really personally think about each other. I, I have no idea, you know, what Mark Garneau and, and mm-hmm. Justin Trudeau thought of each other or, you know, what Hedy Fry thought of thought of Paul Martin. Like it's it's not it, it's and there's a dynamic there interpersonal that it could be oil and water or it could be something where they they come together and move forward effectively. So so it, it, it's a very personal business and you've gone out there and you've gone across a continental sized nation and you've appealed to people and asked them to sign up and to join you it's it's a matter of the heart it's a matter of passion it's it's you've put yourself on display for ridicule attack and 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 all that and you lose and so so you have to deal with people and politicians have you know we have particular kinds of egos and and it's it's a very public business and so you to mend those things it's not even just a tactical thing of if you come along what you thought about or what you push for in the campaign we will recognize but but it's a matter of mending egos and, and getting along and trying to put country first and it's um it's tough it's it's, it's the most high profile um uh, process we have in canada of interpersonal relations that's on display jerry uh, you've seen this more than a few times uh, what would you add or could you add something to that in terms of the first things you should be doing well peter other than every time i hear james talk i lament that he's not the incoming leader of this party. (laughs) Uh, uh, But other than that, I think I would agree with what James said. I would also say that it's important that you establish continuity with the promises you made during the leadership campaign itself. Uh, You establish that there's kind of a new sheriff in town that you uh, if you ha- if you plan any changes, you want to signal that you were serious about them and that you start making them on day one. Uh, I think those conversations are very difficult ones, especially in hard fought, close leadership campaigns. And it's as we lament all the time on this segment of your podcast, it gets harder and harder as the politics of the country gets more and more toxic, not just between parties, but within parties. But it's an opportunity to rise above partisanship. Uh, It's an opportunity to be a leader for all of the people uh, that you want to lead and not just the narrow partisan segment that delivered the uh, 
the leadership to you. So from my perspective, it's all about establishing um, with an eye to a general election campaign. It's about establishing a broader coalition of people than the ones that than the people who granted you the prize that year. So you're always trying to think a couple of steps ahead. And I think that's the secret to success in politics. One of the first decisions I guess any leader has to make other than the ones you've just mentioned is who to immediately surround themselves with. Yeah. who uh, he or she feels is, is the person or the people they want closest to them as they make some of the decisions that every leader has to make. Now, there are two schools of thought here. You can go with the people who brought you there. In other words, the people who help manage your leadership campaign. Mm-hmm. Or you can have a totally different kind of um, operative working there. That, uh, and we've seen this over time through, through all parties where it's not necessarily the best campaign organizers who make the best policy advisors. So how do you make that decision? Jerry, you start us on this round. That's a really hard one, Peter. And it's certainly, I would argue, more difficult when you win the election campaign because of the dynamic you described. I think that's a bit of a cliche in my experience. Uh, There are lots of versatile, talented people who are very valuable and useful on campaigns who also are valuable in the um, the prose environment of government, you know, the old cliche that campaigning is poetry and governing is prose. I think that's true, but I think it's also true that lots of talented people can make that transition. But it's inevitable that there are a few people to whom the candidate or leader or new prime minister is very close that you can't necessarily bring them with you to the next step of the journey. And those are very, very difficult conversations that you have to have with people. Um, But again, I think it's, you want to have a plan, right? And I know that sounds like a cliche, but I used to say this all the time, politics plan beats no plan 99% of the time. And if your plan was only to win the leadership and then you plan on making another one, once you get there, you're going to have a really rocky start that you want to have at least the first, uh, uh, the fabled hundred days planned out uh, so that you create a clear sense in the broader public of who you are, what you stand for and why you're there. George, George Will in describing what, what constitutes sort of the, he said there are three pillars of what constitutes a good leader uh, in a democracy. First is, um, do the, does the person surround themselves with people who are smarter than they are and fill in the gaps? And do they know their limitations and, and surround themselves with those people? And do they listen to them? Number one. Number two, when they're presented with a balance of evidence that are that is substantive and objective and also subjective and political, and those two worlds collide, and when they have to make the decision of judgment on balance to the sweep of their careers, do they make the correct judgment call? So surrounding yourselves with smart people, and then the question of judgment, and then the third pillar is at core: is this a person of good character? Is he a good is 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 he a good guy? Uh, would you trust him with your spouse, with your money, with your kids? So surround yourself with smart people and listen to them. When it comes to the question of judgment, do they make the right call on balance? Nobody's perfect. And then third, at core, is it a person of good character? And then institutions around the leader should should buttress and fulfill all of that and should reinforce the best elements of those things. Let me let me just isolate that first one, first of all. Uh, surround yourself with smart people and listen to the advice they get. 
can you can you each of you can you can you name an example of somebody who did just that your, your own personal situations perhaps <laughs> <laughs> you know ignore those but in terms of, of of the kind of modern history the recent history of Canadian politics uh, because it's always seemed to me that there's that that in in a way is kind of the hardest thing to do the surrounding yourself with smart people not necessarily that hard but listening to them taking their advice acting on their advice uh, sometimes may be harder yeah, I mean, you know, and we've made it harder. And 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 I think, you know, um, Jerry will have a very long list, but I have a very short list of the sins of the Harper government. Um, and, <laughs> and, and, but but, but I, I think among among the mistakes that were made, I think, where it was the the Accountability Act, quote, quote, which is a large piece of legislation and a series of pieces of legislation. But among them, you know, was the, the five year ban on lobby coming back into government because it in, in on, on the cultural side, it sort of made government relations and, and all that, you know, look like a dirty business or be tainted that way, number one. But two, seven, five of the last seven elections have yielded minority parliaments. And so you have a churn of politicians, a churn of staff. And, and you're not going to attract quality people in the prime earning years of their life when they're full of vim and vinegar to and, and passion about public policy to, to you know, risk, you know, sort of a half decade of their livelihoods and plus their family disruptions and all that when you're, you're basically curbing off their ability to parlay uh, not in a nefarious way, but their public contributions into sort of uh, you know private opportunities, and so so we made that mistake. But you know, it's so it's hard to attract quality people to public life who who can fulfill what Jerry and I just sort of described at a, at a high level. Um, so it's tough. That's why I think it's really important for the course of a leadership race that that people who are running for leader think ahead to that and think ahead to that dynamic that, you know, if I'm going to run, do I think I can win? Do I think I can beat my political opponent? Can I have the right messaging, raise the right money, raise the right money? Yeah. But you also need a crew of people who who will be ride or die with you. You need people who will forever in their lives be 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 tattooed with Jerry Butts as a Justin Trudeau liberal. I'm a Stephen Harper conservative. It open in in life. It closes certain doors. It opens certain doors. It's a bargain that I made. It's one that I'm very proud of. It's one that Jerry's very proud of. And you need people like that in your life. Um, but then you have to also fulfill other things in other capacities, and you have to reach out to people, and you have to. You know, if, if you want the privilege of being the prime minister of the country, you, not only do you have to sell yourself to 35 million Canadians, but you also should have the capacity to fulfill a cabinet, to fulfill a caucus, and also to have a core group of staffers who can buy into your vision. And if you can't do that, then you probably shouldn't be prime minister. Uh, Jerry, oh, that, Jerry, you're at the classic fork in the road here. You can either go with what you were, <laughs> were trying to get in earlier, or you can, or you can take the road, which is the answer to my question. But it's your choice. You go, you take the well, road you want. I'll, I'll be a good guest and answer your question, Peter, but I'll answer it in a different way because my favorite example is neither Canadian nor recent. It's Abraham Lincoln. And uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin wrote a great book about this, the um, uh, Team, of Rivals. Title, but Team of Rivals. But my favorite of those stories is uh, William Stanton, who had embarrassed Lincoln publicly when Lincoln was a young lawyer in Springfield, Illinois, and the most uh, you know, you can kind of create, it's like nails on a chalkboard to think of the story. And then a few years later, through the most improbable set of circumstances, Abraham Lincoln finds himself president of the United States as it's beginning to self-immolate. And who does he call uh, to be in his ca cabinet but Stanton? Because he was the best person available when their one and only meeting 
had been a horrific embarrassment, both personally and professionally for Lincoln. That's the kind of character you want in positions of leadership, people who are going to almost be able to step outside their own bodies and look at themselves as if they're objects and uh, understand what's best for the state, province, country. I would say uh, another example, uh, frankly, is the Harper government during the financial crisis, that had they taken the traditional conservative ideological approach to responding to the financial crisis, the country would have been in a much deeper hole than it ended up in. But Harper listened to people who wouldn't necessarily tell him what he wanted to hear. And they developed a, a pretty good response to what was potentially a catastrophic event. The, I'll give you a, a, an example. I, I will answer your question this time of failure. And it was actually the moment when I knew Stockwell Day's leadership of the Canadian Alliance was over. Some people may have known it earlier, but I was in the Conservative Caucus or, or the Canadian Alliance Caucus at the time, a new MP. I thought everything was going great relative to what, what did I know? And I remember Stockwell Day, he had, he had, he surrounded himself. He tried to follow the Lincoln example, whether he knew it or not, and surrounded himself with rivals. Deborah Gray, you know, was, was deputy leader, Chuck Strahl, Jay Hill. Um, Ian Todd on the staffing side, who's now Pierre Polyev's chief of staff, who was Preston Manning's EA. So the Preston Manning team, he made Ian Todd his chief of staff. And Stockwell Day just never, he just crashed and burned on the runway after the 2000 election, never got anything underway. These people were about to quit. And I remember Stockwell Day standing up in our caucus room and he actually put out his hands and people were saying, like, where's your team? Who's your strategic advisor? Who's who's the person who's going who's gonna to sort of get us going in the right direction? We want to give you a chance. And I remember he stood up in the caucus room and he put his hands up. He said, you guys are my caucus. <laughs> you're, you're my advisors. <laughs> like, that, actually, that actually happened. And, and I, and I, wow. I I just remember thinking, like, uh, it's, it's over. Like, it's over. Like, he, he, does, he doesn't get it. He doesn't wow. understand. And um, and and from that, I lost confidence. And at that moment, it was myself and James Rajat, Scott Reed. We went to Stephen Harper and said, we said, this guy's done. We need to we need to rebuild. And the, the other guys broke off and created the DRC. And we had a civil war for a couple of years. But uh, uh, spoiler alert, it all turned out great in the end. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that... Um, that both you two have experienced, both firsthand and, and and watching from off the field, is situations where a leader comes in, a new leader comes in, and you know, even from the get-go, like right away, uh, that there's probably 10 to 15% of, uh, uh, of the, the caucus or even the party are going to be offside with this new leader. Just no matter what that leader, what he or she does, they're going to be offside. How do you deal with that? How do you, how do you first of all, prepare the leader for the, 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 that reality is, is, is going to happen? Um, but how do you decide how to, how to handle it? Well, I, I think that this is not unique to politics, Peter. I think there are kind of three kinds of conflict in any organization. One is process conflict, which is, I don't like the way we're doing this. One is content conflict, which is, I don't like what we're doing. And the last is interpersonal conflict, which is, I don't like you. (laughs) And if it's the third, then you have to figure out a way to manage those people out of positions of authority. But generous leadership dictates that you give them every opportunity to air grievances in categories one and two and try and solve them. Right. But there comes a time when if someone is 
ardently opposed to everything you're trying to accomplish and they're wearing your jersey, they need to be traded. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and and there and there are people who are on suicide missions. It's it's their version or no version, and and they're not prepared to put some water in their wine, and they're not prepared to take half a loaf of, and all that. And 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 those people, frankly, have to be jettisoned. You know, graveyards of the world are filled with indispensable politicians. So you know, you have and to, their advisors. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you know, I mean, speaking, you know, put, put, putting names to circumstance. I mean, Alain Reyes, right, and and, and Pierre Polyev in his transition, uh, clearly a very talented politician. He was the deputy, you know, leader of the and the Quebec, you know, caucus chair and Quebec lieutenant for both Andrew Shear and Aaron O'Toole. So this is a guy who has, you know, clearly had had a great deal of, of support and, and respect within the caucus. But you know, he doesn't like Pierre Polyev. Doesn't agree. Okay. Well, in a democracy, the majority has rights. And boy, does Pierre Polyev have 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 a, have, a, have, a, have a right to lead the party. He won Alan Reyes's own riding. He won every riding in Quebec except for two. So he has a right to lead the party, whether Alan Reyes likes it or not. And Alan Reyes respectfully has stepped out of the way, and he's he's not coming along. Stephen Harper, you know, when he when he when, when the merger happened and he beat Belinda Stronach and Tony Clement for the leadership of of, of our party, like it, it was actually pretty messy. Rick Baratic, who was the House leader for Peter McKay, didn't come across. There were four progressive conservative senators who stayed as progressive conservatives and kept trying to keep the brand going. You know, Scott Bryson crossed the floor, Keith Martin crossed the floor, John Heron from New Brunswick crossed the floor. Like it was it was not without its problems, but that took about three months and it solved itself when we moved forward because people respected the mandate that Stephen had and he just soldiered forward. So so these things can be messy because of egos and personalities. And you wonder whether or not that leader will will transmit in my riding, whether or not I can carry forward or I don't like his his personality, as Jerry described those three those three dynamics. So um, the, the challenge of a leader is to, is to face those conflicts and move forward. The more challenging problems, of course, are, are when those conflicts happen, not in a transition from winning a leadership to becoming a leader, but becoming a leader to becoming the prime minister. Okay, I want, I want to take a break here in a second, but I, one last point on this, this particular topic. You know, Brian Mulroney used to be given a lot of credit, still is today, as sort of the leader who showed a style in managing his caucus by meeting with uh, them individually, having dinner with them, bringing them to 24 Sussex, when there used to be a 24 Sussex, all of that stuff. Um, and that he was kind of a master at that. Now, you'd think that other leaders would automatically do that to keep caucus on side, but that hasn't happened. Or at least if it has happened, I'm not aware of it. Um, is that a good approach or can it carry its own potential problems in, in, in sort of cozying up on a constant basis to as many of those MPs, backbenchers mainly, um, who, who seem to be out of the, out of the orbit of the decision-making process? Jerry? Well, it's certainly the results speak for themselves, Peter, when Brian Mulroney was down to the proverbial blood relatives and paid staff in support levels, not a single member of this caucus split on them. So I think that that's, that's well, with one really important notable exception from his cabinet uh, on other matters, but it wasn't because of Brian's personality. I think Prime Minister Mulroney is a very naturally gregarious, extroverted guy, and he legitimately enjoyed the company of other politicians. In my experience, all politicians are not like that. Um, so I think leaders would be well advised to follow the Mulrooney model, but not all of them can. 
James? I think that's right. I think that's right. And there's there's a question often: what's better, to govern by fear or to govern by by love and respect? Um, and fear lasts longer and it's more effective. But if your government starts to lose its its footing, then then you know people push back against that over time. And also, you know, if if you're governing in Canada, you know, a minority government in Canada, you you need to have 135 seats is kind of the floor now. You know, to a to a majority of 165, 170, that's kind of the range in which that's a lot of personalities with a lot of different needs. Some of them are at the end of their political career. Some of them are at their start. Some of them want your job one day. Some of them want to be in cabinet, but never will. But don't never will be. But don't know it. Some of them are in cabinet, probably shouldn't be. But for for the for the grace of dynamics um and so so there's a lot of egos a lot of pressures a lot of personalities and it takes to manage and you know my my way of saying by the way and we don't we don't say this often enough i think in certainly in canadian politics but the expectations of the capacity of a leader in canada are overwhelming you have to be a, a genuine public policy expert on something or a few things and surround yourself but you certainly have to be literate on a broad sweep of public policy issues you have to understand the nature of canadian federalism and the regional pressures of this country you have to stand the, the multicultural dynamics and pressures of of societal life and what people are dealing with you have to understand economics you have to understand some grasp of sociology you have to have iq you have to have good eq you have to have a good gq and by the way you have to be able to do all of this while understanding canada's place in the world is one of the most international countries and by the way you have to do all of this while managing personalities in a parliamentary system with the presidential expectations of, of the media environment and by the way you have to do all this flawlessly in two languages well, that's, a, you, hell, you that's made, a hell of an expectation and, and you didn't even met, mention managing the president of the united states <laughs> all of that so i mean you know so so we have a hell of a lot right so 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 when somebody puts their hand up and says uh, like I, I've had it many times where people said, you know, I'm thinking about running for leader provincially, federally. And, you know, what do you think? And I said, you're not in because the answer to the question of are you running for leader is not yes or no. It's either yes or hell yes. And if you're mm -hmm. not hell yes and you understand this whole dynamic that's in front of you, you will not survive because because what we expect of what is required for successful leadership leadership in this country is is so grand and so complicated um that it's very very tough and there are very few people who are who are, who are up to the standard okay we're going to take that uh, quick break here but we'll be right back with our latest more butts conversation and welcome back to the bridge you're listening to the bridge on sirius xm channel 167 canada talks or on your favorite podcast platform and welcome back to the more butts conversation number four we're trying to analyze just what a leader a new leader has to do when they take over their party we've covered a, quite a bit of ground but we're going to cover some new ground here in the uh, final segment of the program and that new ground is aside from the staffing close to the new leader what else does this new leader have to worry about in terms of the people who are working for him well one potential area is funding the party's eventually going to have to run an election campaign and they need money to do that so the funding arm is really important and who you put it in charge of it is important and how you make that decision also policy development who's going to do that how do you make those decisions? So the question is, how important are those decisions in the first place? And how important is it that the leader involves himself or herself in those decisions? So let's get it started. Um, Jerry, your quick analysis on that question. 
the person that you're going to lean on to write your platform. You want to be very close and simpatico philosophically with that person. And um, this is all extra parliamentary appointments, of course, and the campaign director. Those, I think, would be the, the people who are going to, the person who's going to raise your money, the person who's going to develop your ideas with you, and the person who's going to run your campaign, other than your immediate staff, are the most important people in your life. James? Yeah, I, th- I think I think all of that all that is right. But I, th- I think most importantly as well is that you know th- this is not a cooperative. No, right. <laughs> you, th- th- this is like if 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 you're going to lead, you need to lead, and you have to have your hands on it. Party members expect you expect the leader to have both hands on the wheel and to be driving in a, in a clear direction and to be transparent about it and to be accountable and say, this is the executive director of the party. This is the chair of the fund. This is the board of the fund. This is the this is the uh, executive of the party. <clears throat> this is my house leader caucusly. You, you have to own the leadership of the party because you will be held accountable for when the wheels come off. And you can't say, well, I was just trying to be fair, you know, to the red Tory wing of the party that I, that I kind of have. Nobody cares about that. They care about results and outcomes. Um, It's said in conservative politics that, you know, that conservatives have to respect their leader. They don't have to love their leader. They don't have to like their leader. They need to respect their leader in terms of their substance and their capacity to 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 to, to push things forward. And and I think you know you you can't lead unless you can control things. And that's going to be one of the and it's already been talked about. I think in some shows, you know the 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 Michael Chong and the Democratic reform stuff that he's he's put forward. Justin Trudeau has skillfully avoided that trap. Um, the previous leaders of the Conservative Party have not. But I, but I think that one of the most important things that Pierre Polyev should do out of the gate is ensure that there's a clarity with the caucus that he leads the he leads the party that he leads this effort to to provide an alternative government to canadians and that caucus doesn't lead this this is not a british i mean it's a, it's a it's a not a british model it's a canadian model it's unique and and we cannot um, you cannot lead the party if you're not actually in control of the party you know you were you were doing some heavy nodding jerry through that answer <laughs> well i agree i agree completely you can't be as we'd say back home in our soul about it, but you've got to show people that you're in charge. And I think of the early days of the Trudeau leadership, uh, which seemed, which (laughs) seems like a thousand years ago now, but when Trudeau made the decision to remove the liberal senators from the liberal caucus, that was, uh, it, it was a big story publicly, but nothing compared to the shockwaves it sent through liberal landia. He, basically threw people out of caucus, some of whom were appointed by his father. Uh, And uh, I think that that move had the virtue of showing that he had his own ideas about how he was going to conduct the office and let everybody put everybody on notice that not unlike uh, Mr. Qualia, if he came in with a, a massive majority of support from the party, that he was going to implement his ideas. And it wasn't just... He wasn't there to talk about them. Just to clarify, uh, when you say that we use this term back home, <laughs> we're, we're talking about Cape Breton, are we? Cape Breton, yes. Yeah. Okay. Which we should say a word about, by the way, because people are really suffering yeah. uh, in Cape Breton. And my hometown of Glace Bay was particularly hard hit. And people are pulling together, as they always do. Uh, in these circumstances in that part of the world. But I would encourage anybody who has extra money lying around to donate to either the United Way of Greater Cape Breton or 
the Red Cross, both of whom are doing great work out there. And both of whom, are, or at least the Red Cross, and perhaps both of them, the, the donations they compile are being doubled by the, uh, by the federal government, so good for them. And, and it is, you know, what, what we witnessed in Atlanta, Canada, and what we witnessed in Florida is unlike anything we've seen in our lifetimes in terms of damage on, on this continent. And if it does sadly, we will see a lot more of it in the rest of our lifetimes. Yeah, but that's perhaps a topic for another. Yeah, and and, and it is a good topic because it becomes this sort of, you know, we kind of hinted at it on on Friday in Good Talk. This, you know, if the ballot question ends up being, you know, inflation versus climate change, what's the winning ticket? Um, but as you said, that's a conversation <laughs> for, for for another day. I want I, I, I want to kind of finish this off, and we can take as much time as we want on this by coming up with examples of, and it, they don't have to be Canadian; they could be anywhere. Um, you know, a new leader who's done it right, and a new leader who's not done it right, who's done it wrong, and has paid the price as a result of that. Um, Let's start with the done it wrong one. Who wants to uh, to go there? And I know that in in some case you don't you don't want to destroy friendships here, but and uh, that's why I say it's a wide open field. You can use any example uh, that you can think of. Who's done it wrong? Well, I think there's a very live current example, and that's Liz Truss in the UK. That she was through the democratic system that James just described uh, in the UK, she was the beneficiary of the caucus deposing leader. She was given the job of Prime Minister of Great Britain, uh, the United Kingdom under, um, you know, odd circumstances, Peter, where she has very few actual voters who put her in the highest office in the land. And she chose to interpret her mandate very radically and as a consequence um you know cost almost you know billions of pounds to the british uh public and i think that that's there are a lot of lessons to be derived from that but one is i think the most important whether you're taking over the leadership of a party or a country is to understand why people put you there and what your mandate looks like and if you overstep those bounds the checks and balances within any democratic system are going to punish you severely. I think trust is a glaring example of that. I, I'll, I think one of them that didn't go well, and it, we've already talked about the operational stuff and the staffing stuff, but on a higher level, I don't think Paul Martin did well. Um, and I actually think it, he was hobbled in the beginning as a consequence of it. Um, you know, it, it's been said um, by uh, um, John Quincy Adams, not John Adams, but his son, quote his, one of his quotes was being all things to all people means being nothing to no one and paul martin you know the juggernaut who is going to win certainly my suburban vancouver riding which was, he was sort of a gordon campbell you know blue liberal red tory crossover voter you know perfect for the moment in the mid 2000s and all that um you know his coalition spanned everything from Ujjal Dosanjh to Keith Martin to Scott Bryson to Hetty Fry to like it was just it was too big and, and in politics as you know you know there the, the, a government you have three and as a cabinet minister as a prime minister there's sort of three things that are that are thrust upon you there are things that you proactively want to do there's the things that you operationally have to do by function of being government and then the third thing is are the things that you have to respond to that 
happen. Donald Trump happens. The floods happen. Crises happen. Uh, Ukraine uh, being invaded by Putin happens. So stuff that you want to proactively do, stuff that you have to happen by have to do by function of government, and the things you have to react to. And Paul Martin had a million priorities, you know, like he, he and so there was no clarity and focus. And so the transition, I think, failed because he had promised so many things to so many people, and there were just too many people on the ship, and the ship never got got out of the port because it was weighed down by so much expectations and so many priorities. You got to focus. You got to be clear about what you want your legacy to be very early in your mandate and drive towards it and be persistent about it. Uh, you know, we talk about climate change. Obviously, Justin Trudeau has, has hung his hat on that and he wants that to be his legacy. We won't get into the substance of the debate of that, but at least there's a clarity there in terms of thematic that Justin Trudeau wants 20 years hence people look back and say he was the guy who focused on that thing. Uh, and, and I think Paul Martin never, ever had that focus. It was never clear why he wanted to be prime minister other than the fact that he wanted to be prime minister. And, you know, and within two years, he was, you know, he was he had lost that uh, that job, that position. Uh, and, and and I've said this, but I mean, not to tell tales out of, out of two, but, I, but I've, I've said this to Pierre Polyev as well. It's you, you can become prime minister because the public just wants the other team out. A lot of people have become premiers and prime ministers just because we've got to throw the bums out. That can happen. But in order for you to become the prime minister and then to do something with it, the public has to come along with you. You you can become prime minister, but the public has to really want you to be prime minister for you to actually get to do something with that mandate. To, to throw the current government out is one thing, and then you're standing there and you're left with kind of nothing in terms of an energy and a force and, and, and a consent by the public to do stuff. They have to want you to be prime minister to do a certain thing. So you, have, you need to decide between now and the campaign, what is it that you want to get from the public as a mandate to do? And you, it can be relatively vague. It can be thematic. It can be specific, you know, Stephen Harper cutting the GST by two points. It can be one of those things, but you have to get a bit of a mandate from the public. Otherwise, you're you're going to be very limited in terms of your your room to to move forward and to and to focus on something in a way that Paul Martin never did. Uh, yeah, and then you have to do it right. Yeah, that's yeah. the key thing. Uh, I used to I maybe even said this on the show, but I used to say all the time in politics that the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And if you can't tell yourself what that thing is, you're going to have a hard time doing it. Um, but you better darn well spend most of your waking hours trying to make progress on it while you're in the job. And, and I do have to say, and this is where I think Justin Trudeau is at risk as we go forward. I mean, we have a there's a real economic crisis. We talk about what's happening in the UK. I think there's every expectation that could very well happen here. Recession is likely <clears throat> is likely going to come. It could be substantive. It could be global in nature. Cost of living, rising interest rates, rising cost of fuel, all these things. You know, and, and if the government is still talking about climate change, you know, sort of seeming to be void of the of the immediate pressures and crises that people are having, um, you know, it's it's you know, it's a thematic that's consistent and maybe the main thing. But if if you know the public gets to decide what the politicians are talking about, and if the politicians are talking about that, they will go and get themselves a new group of politicians to talk about their thing. All right, Jerry, let me just before we leave Liz Trust, let me just ask you this. Uh, the reason I mentioned Paul Martin, you know, he got his two years, uh, but he because he stumbled out of the gate, he was gone in two years. Um, can Liz Truss turn this around, or could it be proven over the next year that the actions she has taken, as bad as they look right now, um, actually were right? Oh, I mean, you, you don't Peter, seem to be giving her any chance. 
I don't think she has a chance. I mean, I, I would, we're in my day job at Eurasia Group, we're in the business of assessing probabilities these days. I would say she has a 10 to 15% chance of turning things around. And we'll, we'll know one of the key signposts will be what the economic statement from the, the chancellor is on the 23rd of November, because all that's happened at present is the markets are being, the, the hounds are being kept away from the door because the Bank of England took the extraordinary step of responding to not some external crisis, but the policy decisions of its own government. And therefore the markets have been calmed. But what markets are expecting is that the UK will reverse course on, on the 23rd. And if they don't reverse course, they're probably going to lose the next election. So that's a bit of a seat. That's a bit of a floor on how bad things can get in the United Kingdom. But I don't think, you know, she's dying to generate the headline. She's not meant for turning uh, so that she can emulate her, her idol, Margaret Thatcher. And she may indeed get that headline, but she should turn. Um, okay, last question, uh, and, and feel free to abandon your team colors on, on this one, but, it, but it, is, it is the question, who's done it right? Who do you point to in this country or elsewhere say, you know what, they were right from the moment they won the leadership of, of their party? I'll give kudos to Christy Clark in my home province of British Columbia. You know, she because the circumstance of her leadership was was unique. And I and I I wonder if Danielle Smith will be able to 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 replicate this because the circumstances are similar. Christy Clark was an outsider, came back, took over the BC Liberal Party from Gordon Campbell, had one MLA in a majority government support her leadership race, support her in the leadership race. And she won on I think it was a third ballot. The contested leadership very tight and she had no caucus support. But she came in, reached out to people who were against her, put key people in cabinet. Her main rival, Kevin Falcon, who's now the leader of the BC Liberal Party, was made as finance minister. She said, you know, I may personally agree with the HST, but I'm going to surrender to the public's judgment. We're going to we're going to roll it back. I've tasked my finance minister to to recognize them, to to recognize the results of the plebiscite and to undo the HST. And and then those MLAs who still didn't like her and didn't support her, she gave them an opportunity for a graceful exit. They left and she restaffed the party with people who believed in her leadership, who were not the current crew, crew of people. And she went on and won a surprise majority mandate and, and sort of did a transition. So she won on the third ballot, had no caucus support, showed respect to the people who, she, who, who were her rivals got them out of the way, rebuilt the party, and then went on to, to win a successful majority mandate. That was that was an example of a transitional, which at the whole time in that window was listening to the public sentiment on the HST and then putting something new in the window, which was LNG and a, and a hopeful, optimistic path forward uh, for growth. Uh, I think that was about about as clean as you could get with, with some difficult cards that were given to her. Jerry? Well, in the transition to a government, I'll say something. This is two good, two nice things I've said about the Harper government in this talk. I thought Harper did an excellent job of taking, if your objective is to consolidate and then grow, Harper started thinking about how he was going to put together a majority coalition the day after he won a minority government. And that was certainly one of those circumstances that James described where it was a throw the bums out election. 
And Harper um, understood that, I think, and knew that in order to get to a majority position, he needed a million people to vote for him who didn't vote for him on the day he became uh, the day they made him prime minister. So I think that that's a good example of it. Someone taking over the leadership of the party. You know, obviously, I think uh, Trudeau did a good job, but that's not exactly playing against type now, is it? Uh, I, I think that um, I'm struggling to think of one. Uh, I Tim uh, Houston, Houston, the, the yeah. current premier of my home province. Yeah, nice I thought he did an excellent he did an excellent job when he took over uh, what was generally considered to be a moribund political party that was far behind in the polls and was going to lose the next election. And he very quietly and methodically put his own people in place, built different policies, appealed to a broader cross sect cross-section of the Nova Scotia population, and it all paid off. I think that Nova Scotia example is a good one. Uh, it, it's one that perhaps should be studied by certainly other provincial governments uh, that the, the seem were provincial parties who, who worry that they're never going to get their opportunity because they look so far behind. Uh, he did and, and managed to turn it around. Okay, we're going to leave it at that. Gentlemen, this has been fascinating conversations as the uh, conversations that we, the three of us have had uh, all the, already this year have been all along, and there'll be another one coming up. So look forward to that. Thanks, James. Thanks, Jerry. Always Thank a pleasure, Peter. Well, there you go. The Moore Butts conversation number four. And it was a great conversation, and so were the other three. In fact, you know, maybe I should package these as an album. Great Moore Butts Conversations or Butts Moore Conversations. I'll have to have that argument someday. Anyway, the table set there. There were a number of different things that came up in that conversation that could make their own conversation in the future. And we'll, uh, we'll discuss those possibilities as the days and weeks move forward. I should just mention, as I did mention before, um, this started today and as i mentioned in the break it was recorded in winnipeg over the weekend and i mentioned that because clearly uh the british prime minister this lady is not made for turning well she in fact did turn uh, at least on part of her economic package just today and we'll see how that plays out um but nevertheless glad to have both uh, uh, James and Jerry with us this week. Hope you enjoyed it. Friday, of course, good talk, Chantal Bear and Bruce Anderson will join us once again. Rob Russo filling in for Bruce last Friday, and it was a great broadcast, uh, as Rob always uh, delivers for us as well. All right, that's it for this day. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back at you in 24 hours. You've been listening to an encore presentation of The Bridge with Peter Mansbridge, originally broadcast on October the 3rd.